Good afternoon. Hi, I'm Shalini Kempka. Um, for those of you that don't know me, I am the founder of E2E Exchange. Um, as, as some of you hopefully will know who are on the call, um, E2E has been around for about uh, nine years now. Uh, we founded the business in 2011. It's grown to an organization of about 23,000 um, um, scale-up businesses. We contribute uh, 213 billion to the UK economy, and we employ 1.15 million people. So today, um, uh, I'm joined by Paul Donovan. Uh, it's a really special opportunity, actually, because he is the global chief economist uh, of UBS uh, Wealth Management. Um, I'll tell you a little bit more about him in, in a few minutes, but uh, I just wanted to say hi, Paul. I, I think you, you won't be able to see Paul, but hopefully you can all hear him. Paul, could you just say hello? Yes, hello, everybody. Uh, so I, I apologize that um, due to technical difficulties, you're only going to be able to see my face today. So, um, but you will be able to uh, listen and uh, interact and ask a lot of questions of Paul. Um, so I was saying it's a special opportunity because I think um, the way that things have been changing over the last six weeks in terms of uh, COVID-19, a lot of people on their mind has been, what does the global economic situation look like? How is it going to evolve over the coming um, 12 months and, uh, and longer? And I guess there's no real better person that we can speak to directly and interact with than Paul. Um, he's got a very strong background in economics. And I also want to just say a few things. There's, a, there's about, uh, about 100 people joining today. Um, so the idea of, of today, as per our last six sessions, has been to make this session very, very interactive. So um, Paul is going to spend about 10 minutes. He's going to talk about his views uh, on the economic landscape and also some of the support packages by the government. Uh, and then um, what I'd love you to do is to please unmute your um, your um, laptops or your phones, whatever you're on, please introduce yourself and please do ask as many questions. So we've got roughly an hour um, in which to, to chat and I think we'll use this time really carefully to maximise our knowledge and our learning around how the global landscape is going to be changing, what sectors are going to be evolving socially, politically, um, Paul's views. Um, I also wanted to share with you, I know it's a very difficult time and um, it's nice to be able to share some good news. So some of the people on the call will know that E2E has been campaigning uh, across the board for changes to government support packages. Uh, we were one of the first companies to request of the Chancellor that he introduces a 100% guarantee on loans. And um, uh, not this Monday gone, but the, the Monday before, he introduced the bounce back loan, which was actually opened yesterday uh, for, for uh, applications. So that was partly to do with our request. And thank you to all of you who gave me feedback to be able to put that request forward to the Chancellor, um, where he's agreed to give £50,000, up to £50,000 or 25% of a company's turnover, 100% guaranteed, interest-free for one year, and then the interest rate should raise to about 2.5% thereafter. Uh, I also want to let you know that we are asking him to increase that threshold. So we don't know whether that will happen or not. And it'll be quite interesting to have Paul's views on whether we should, as a country, do that or not. And um, Paul will talk about these sorts of things in a minute. So I'm pleased that E2E had a big say in, in that. 
Um, towards the end of the call, I also want to share with you some of the recommendations that we've made. As many of you will know, I've been leading a, a committee um, on the job retention scheme, making policy recommendations to number 10, again, uh, with feedback from our members. So I will share with you the highlight of the paper that went to, um, to Bayes and number 10 about 10 days ago. So I'll share that with you shortly. But um, before I do that, I wanted to spend a couple of minutes telling you a bit about Paul. But as I mentioned, um, Paul Donovan, he's the global economist for UBS Wealth Management. He's responsible for developing and presenting the UBS economic outlook, the marketing of UBS's views on economics, the policy, uh, politics around the world. And he regularly appears, hopefully some of you have seen him um, on broadcast media. He's on print. And today we have him uh, on the phone, so uh, thank you. Um, I didn't know, but he's also an amateur heavyweight boxer. He's a keen skier. Paul is a nice mix of skiing and the boxing. Um, he is an author. Um, hopefully some of you might have read some of his books that all your children might have done. So some of his books include, and I'm not sharing you all the names because it'll take too long, but some of the names. Um, From Red to Green, How the Financial Credit Crunch Could Bankrupt the Environment. Um, food Policy and the Environmental Credit Crunch, um, it's from Soup to Nuts, um, How the World Really Works, The Economy, A Children's Guide to Economics. Uh, he's written a few more children's books, one I found quite interesting in terms of the name, Harold Finn, Ninja Warrior, The Warrior Within, and his latest, I think, is The Truth About Inflation that was published um, a, a, a sort of a few years back. Um, so those are some of his books. He's uh, done politics, philosophy, economics from Oxford University and, uh, and uh, now is um, working, obviously, as the head of uh, uh, the Economist, Global Economist for UBS. So, Paul, is there anything in the intro I should have said a little bit more about yourself um, that you'd like to say? No, I think that, that's covered everything. Thank you very much. Great. Did I get the book um, right? Googling you, and I was noticing so many books. Yes. Um, yes. Uh, so, uh, and another one which I have to finish by the end of the month, or my publisher is going to kill me, uh, which will be on labor markets and prejudice. Um, and the boxing is simply because economists need to defend their forecasts any way that they can. Okay. Well, we look forward to that. When is that one out? Uh, so, the next book uh, will hopefully be out in October or November of this year. Okay. Well, we wish you the best with that, Paul. And uh, would you be kind enough to share with us, I know it's a, it's a challenging one because of the situation we're currently in, your views on the economic climate, firstly in the UK, internationally, and then some of your, your views around the sectors that have um, come out well and are going to go through difficulty and anything you'd like to share with us, really. And then we'll go into the Q&A. Sure, of course. Thank you. Um, so we, we need to start with a couple of health warnings, I'm afraid. Um, economic data at the moment is complete nonsense. Um, as you're probably aware, uh, most economic data is survey-based. Um, so we, we obviously know that you know, consumer confidence is just an opinion poll. Um, you know, the purchasing managers' indices are extremely poor quality opinion polls. Um, but you know, inflation is a survey. Um, uh, GDP, industrial production, retail sales, these are all surveys. 
And let's face it, you've got to be a pretty um, unusual sort of person to be rushing to fill in a government survey in the middle of a lockdown. And in some cases, you know, the, the survey respondents aren't there because they've closed or because they've changed how they're doing business. Uh, and for things like uh, inflation, this, this just means the inflation numbers are, are basically being made up at the moment. I mean, it's, an, it's a work of fiction. Um, how do you survey restaurant prices, for example, which are sort of 7 8% uh, of uh, inflation, uh, food away from home, it's called, is 7 8% of inflation. How do you survey that when no one is buying food away from home because we're all in lockdown? So we've got a real problem understanding what's going on in real time. Some numbers are reliable. Claimant count unemployment in the UK, initial jobless claims in the States, uh, bank lending data. You know, these are fairly reliable numbers. Um, credit card data can give some hints as to what's going on. But remember, of course, that as more people are shopping online, more people are being forced to use credit cards. Uh, so that's not an entirely uh, clean data set. And then the second problem that we've got is that the nature of this cycle is very, very difficult to model, to, to try and predict, because it's totally unique. Um, normally, an economic downturn is caused by an imbalance in the economy. Uh, you might get a credit bubble uh, or a current account problem, or uh, you might have a housing bubble. And what happens is the imbalance causes an economic slowdown, normally as some kind of bubble burst. And then policymakers, normally the central bank, will come in, clear up the imbalance, bring the economy back into balance, and then we get the recovery. And so that's the, the normal pattern of events. Okay. But that's absolutely not what has happened here. No. So what we've got at the moment is policymakers deliberately trying to cut GDP, to lower economic activity. It's a policy objective to lower economic activity in the economy. So the downturn is very unusual, but it also means I think that the upside is very hard to predict. It's not going to be like a normal economic cycle. Um, and I get very irritated with some of these pundits appearing on television and sort of asserting it's going to be a V-shape or a U-shape recovery. We, we really don't know because we don't know exactly how people are going to behave as, as we come out of this situation. Okay. I think it's, it's helpful to think about what is going on in two phases. So phase one, which is where we are now, is where governments are deliberately trying to lower growth. So you can't do economic stimulus in this phase. That's not going to work because you're trying to do the reverse of stimulus. You're trying to lower activity. But what you can do is limit the damage in phase one. Make sure unemployment doesn't go up too much. Make sure business failures don't go up too much. And that then enables you to hit the ground running when we get to phase two, which we're about to start seeing, which is when restrictions start to be lifted and governments can go back to doing what they normally do, which is encouraging economic activity. So one of the critical things, I think, about um, you know, the, the speed of the bounce back, the second phase, is going to be the attitude of consumers, because this is going to dictate how much of a recovery uh, we're likely to be seeing. So 
if we look at consumption in a lockdown, you've basically got three sorts of consumer spending. About 60% of consumer spending, roughly speaking, is going to be stable or it's going to be increasing in the lockdown period. So the way to think about this is that anything that's on direct debit from your bank account plus food is either going to be stable or rising. Food consumed at home is going to go up by about a third because most people typically have one meal a day outside of their home. Now, every meal is at home. Uh, And in terms of um, uh, the the more stable parts, um, people are still paying for household insurance. For example, that's automatically paid, debited from your account. Uh, Your internet service is is not going to be something you're cutting back on. No one is taking my Netflix away from me in the middle of a lockdown. So that spending carries on. But then you've got two other forms of spending, uh, delayed consumption and lost consumption. So delayed consumption is um, about 15% of total consumer spending, roughly. And that's normally consumer durable goods, you know, the televisions, furniture, that kind of thing. That if you were intending to buy uh, a new sofa, you can't do it at the moment because the stores are closed, you're in lockdown. But once lockdown is lifted, you'll go out and buy the sofa, provided you still have a job and provided you're still pretty confident that your job is safe. And that's the absolute critical condition there. So that 15% of consumer spending will happen. It just happens with a delay. The other 25% is lost spending. So, uh, for example, if you get your hair cut every month, uh, in my case, this is a purely hypothetical example, but if you get your hair cut every month, you come out of lockdown, you've missed three haircuts, you don't get four haircuts the first week back. You get one haircut, and the three have been lost, and the money that you would have spent is not going to be spent. So what actually happens there, of course, is that with that element of spending, that actually becomes uh, a sort of enforced saving. It's a bit like wartime. People have still got income coming in because of the furlough schemes or working from home or because you're a pensioner. You've still got income coming in. That's not affected. But your spending has gone down. You've been forced to save. So the second question for the bounce back, the really critical issue, is what happens with that money that you've been forced to save? Do you then go out and spend that money, not on, you know, four haircuts, but on uh, maybe a a better quality sofa or an upgrade to your TV system or whatever it is? Or do you carry on saving that money? And again, it comes down to the confidence people have in their job security and where they're going. If people are confident that their jobs are still going to be safe, then I think that's going to be very, very supportive. And here, I think the British government furlough scheme has been very helpful. You are still being paid wages by your employer. You still have a job. You're just sitting at home for the duration of the crisis. And I think that that's that's helpful. It's a relatively generous scheme in terms of the amount of money people are getting. The fact that it still comes from your employer, your, your wage check or your salary is still coming from the same company. That's also reinforcing the fact that you've got a job. In contrast, in the United States, I'm a bit more worried because in the United States, the furlough scheme is actually extremely generous. Um, It's roughly speaking $1,000 a week uh, on furlough in the United States, regardless of what you earned before. So you can actually get a pay rise by going on furlough in the United States. The difference is 
in the United States, when you're on furlough, you register as being unemployed. Your company no longer pays you. You are signing on as unemployed. You're paid by the government. And that, I think, changes psychologically, potentially, the behavior of the consumer. And it's something that we're going to be monitoring quite closely. So if we've got confident consumers, I think we do get, in the third quarter, uh, a reasonable recovery. It's not going to reverse the damage of the last six months, but you will get a reasonable recovery with the delayed consumption and some of this savings going out into the economy. If we look longer term than that, the, the way that I would describe what is happening at the moment is this is accelerating structural changes that were happening anyway. So you know, the fourth industrial revolution, automation, robotics, all that sort of thing, um, the environmental credit crunch, um, which is the sustainability problem, these were happening anyway. What COVID-19 is doing, I think, is accelerating some of those structural changes. So, yes, I think we will see more online retail. We were going to get this anyway, but it's going to be happening faster. We will get more people working from home. Again, this was going to happen anyway. We're changing the way we use you know, the, the real estate environment, but it's going to be happening faster, and we're getting anecdotal evidence of that. We were expecting long, complicated global supply chains to shrink, more local production to be happening over time. That was a 10-year story. Now maybe it's a five-year story. So these longer-term structural changes, I think, are being accelerated by the shock of COVID-19 as businesses reassess how they do business, as people reassess how they live their lives. Uh, and so we're going to be in a more rapid process of change which is potentially very scary, has good news and bad news around it. Um, but uh, at least we know the general direction we're going in, even if it's perhaps speeded up a bit. So that's sort of a, a quick tour de force of a, a rather complex subject. Um, but I think the, the, the main message I would want to say is that you know, there is the potential for support in the third quarter. We're not going to have a positive year. There's no way we get a positive year. But I think we do see improvements in the third quarter. And as perhaps a final point to emphasize, I would stress that we should never underestimate the resilience of human beings and the ability of humans to adapt. I've seen time and again, you know, with the Fukushima disaster in Japan or with 9-11 uh, in the States, you, know, you get this, this extreme pessimism that comes in uh, in the immediate aftermath of these, these enormous shocks and tragedies. Um, but then people do adapt. People change the way that they behave and things then you know, do get back to a, a better level of economic activity. And I think that this will be the same. We shouldn't underestimate the fact that people will adapt to difficult circumstances. Okay, um, Paul, thank you very much. I have lots of questions, but I'd like to give the, um, the floor really to, to our audience. Um, I'm wondering if Jayesh Hirani is on the line. Jayesh? Hi, Jayesh. Hi, it took a bit longer to uh, get it unmuted. Yeah. Hi, guys. Um, very interesting uh, conversation going on, especially with what Jeff Paul uh, just said last now. So I've got a follow up question, but I'll go with my first question. So Paul, you mentioned about, um, you know, basically the furlough scheme, obviously, in the U.S., it's a lot more sort of uh, generous. Now, um, comparing it to the U.K., where, where obviously the companies still have to sort of operate and you're paid by the company, do you think it's 
unfair the way they've done it, where they they haven't been clear for small startup uh, directors to be able to at least do the basics, i.e., strategy planning, etc. Because um, I was on a call last week, run by again Stefanini, um, about um, you know around this topic, and one of the lawyers who are employment lawyers were saying, actually, the direction don't allow you to do that, and it. And, and you should not attempt to do any strategy or number crunching or whatever, you know, updating your website. What's your view on it? And, and do you think that needs to be addressed? Well, so, I mean, the, the situation in the United States um, is that the companies continue to exist, but the employees are fired. Um, I, I, well, they're made unemployed uh, and they're getting unemployment benefits. So it would be like being unemployed in the UK, except that the company says, no, 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 your job will be available at the end of the day, um, fingers crossed. So that is a, that, that's got less security. From a macroeconomic perspective, um, it is, um, I think, more damaging in the United States. Um, and I think will we'll present a problem in terms of the consumer bounce back and what happens. In terms of you know, restricting what people do, I mean, in the United States, if you're unemployed, you're unemployed. Um, you, 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 if you get another job, then you cease to be unemployed, um, you, uh, and, and so you don't have that particular option. Though if the company is still operating in the United States, if it's not gone into hibernation, then obviously people can uh, work for it, but with that situation would be paid for by the company. So the U.S. is not necessarily that different from the U.K. in this regard. Uh, I think the issue, um, obviously, is that you know, it is very difficult to set a boundary between having something that is generous enough that the consumer is going to feel supported when they come back, but which is not so generous that you're basically paying people to carry on uh, doing what they would be doing anyway. You, know, you need to find the, the right balance between this. Um, honestly, I think you know, if, if you are in a leadership position in a company and you are uh, you know, thinking about strategy and so on. You know, I think about economics uh, you know, uh, when I'm mowing the lawn. I think about economics when, you know, I'm I'm you know, down the gym or or you know, out of the shop. Um, so you can't switch your brain off. And so in that sense, you know, people whether they're on furlough or not can still contribute to actually go into into the more serious aspect of strategy planning. As a director, that's, that's something you're employed for, and I think it is problematic in this sense. Um, what we have had in the UK and what we've had actually in, in most countries is sort of an emergency response to something that is hopefully a relatively short-lived crisis. Um, from a macroeconomic perspective, I'm not you know, things are going to fall through the cracks. Honestly, I don't care that much. What I care about is the fact that consumers have got income which they can spend when they get out of lockdown. That, for me, is the most important thing. Um, so I think that this is potentially a problem um, in terms of how you know, companies are planning for the comeback. Absolutely. Do I think it is going to do serious economic damage? No, I don't. Um, I think it's just one of those things. Uh, you know, people will still be thinking deep thoughts whilst they're on furlough uh, and hopefully will come back raring to go. Can I just add to that? Sorry. Of course. Yeah. 
the fact that okay, um, see, I agree with what you're saying, right? But um, if we don't do anything, yes, of course, you know, we'll be thinking about stuff. But when things do bounce back, say in I don't know, three months, six months, or whatever, right? And everyone's a furlough, you know, furlough or the lockdown is lifted, right? The problem we're going to have, especially with smaller businesses like ourselves, and I'm sure there's many of us because I'm actually in a group that there's like thousands of us in there. And and you know what we're all saying is if we cannot do any of this we're pretty much going to be written off by the end of everything happen. And if if we do survive, uh, because, I don't know, we've got savings or whatever, you know, we cut back on costs, etc. cetera, then, you know, uh, by then, the business is going to be back to, well, you know, we're going to have to deal with current current situation at that time. So we've now lost out six months, and it's going to be badly affecting the economy generally because a lot of companies will go out, uh, go bust, you know, um, as for a company. So, um, I don't know. I feel that that's the part um, that needs to be addressed first, that they at least let the essential stuff go and not commercial. But I understand you can't generate commercial revenue, but they should allow us at least to do the basics so the company stay alive. And that's the end of it. What do you, I don't know, what's your opinion on that? Can I, can I interrupt there? Paul, if you wouldn't mind, um, one of the things that we have asked for, um, so we can move on to the next um, uh, um, question, one of the things that E2E has asked for in the policy paper uh, on um, the job retention scheme is to allow flexi working and something called flexi furlough. Uh, because as you were saying, Josh, it really has having is having a very negative impact uh, on smaller companies. I think it's more beneficial for the bigger businesses. So on that, what we've asked for is one is an extension of the furlough scheme to uh, August this year. We've asked for um, pro rata furlough. We've asked for directors parity in terms of pay. We've asked for people who are on uh, EMI schemes not to lose out because EMI schemes often say that if you're furloughed, you're no longer eligible for the benefits under EMI. So we've made a number of recommendations um, and I'm happy to share some of that content of my paper with you if that would be helpful. Um, but I hope, Paul, that kind of answers some of the question. If you've got something to add, I'm really keen to move on. We've got half an hour left. There's a lot of questions. Sure, no, happy to move on then. Yeah. Um, so, Steve, Steve William, are you back on the line? I think he, he, he's come off the line. If he's there, um, would you mind to unmute and uh, join us, Steve? Uh, Shalini, thank you. Actually, my, I, I am back, but my question's been answered. So thank you very much. Oh, brilliant. Well, nice to have you on there and hope to catch up soon. Um, I'm going to move on, if I may, to um, Stephen Rose. Um, Stephen Rose, would you like to ask your question? Uh, hi, Stephen Rose. Uh, uh, Paul, thanks for a very interesting um, uh, uh, talk. What's your view of the current uh, upswing in the market over the last three weeks? So in, in theory, one of the, the biggest rises we've had for, um, for many, many years. But it does seem out of kilter with what the market's going to be doing in the short term. Well, um, I, I mean, I would argue that the, the market is now probably uh, pricing in roughly my central scenario um, yeah. for the economy, which is of a limited scale bounce back this year and probably a return to 2019 levels of economic activity late 2021. Mm -hmm. um, so what, what's behind that sort of assessment? The first thing, obviously, that we need to remember um, is you know, the relative importance of small businesses versus uh, large businesses to GDP. So listed companies 
generally speaking, account for about a quarter of economic activity, um, up to a third of economic activity in most major economies. Uh, the government sector, the voluntary sector, and small businesses uh, make up the rest, and small businesses are about 60% of uh, private sector economic activity. Uh, listed companies are about 40%. And the reason I stress that is because there will be a divorce between GDP data and um, economic performance because I think, you know, as we've just been discussing, this is a situation which probably disproportionately negatively affects smaller businesses. Smaller businesses tend to have less cash in hand. They don't necessarily have the infrastructure to be able to deal with the situation so readily. I would also suggest that perhaps particularly in the retail sector, um, you know, the, the longer-term trends which were uh, perhaps not entirely favorable to some of these businesses are now being accelerated. So essentially, this is a situation where you would expect the equity market to outperform the economy. So I don't think that this necessarily has to reflect where we're going with GDP in the market. The second thing is... Um, that, of course, the equity market isn't just discounting what happens in the next six months, or at least it's not supposed to. It's supposed to be considering what happens over the course of the next 10 years or so. Um, and again, here, this is a very unusual situation in that, you know, if we go back to the, the, the crisis in 2008, I mean, the entire length of that crisis economically was from 2007 to 2013. It was an extraordinarily long crisis, and it had negative implications for, for earnings growth from listed companies for a very long period of time. This is, a, this is a more severe crisis, but it's also a more condensed crisis, I would argue, that you know, we're not going to drag this on for years and years, because if we are going to be brutally honest, at some point, you will you know, either be immune uh, or there will be a vaccine, or you will be dead. And so this is, a, you know, this is a crisis which does have a limited period to it. So again, I think if you're discounting a decade's worth of earnings, I'm not saying this is a blip, because clearly it's not, um, but it's not as severe as it might seem now. And then the third thing, of course, is, is just, you know, if, if you are an investor, you, what else do you buy? Um, you know, cash is yielding you nothing. The bond market is yielding you next to nothing. Um, corporate bonds do offer uh, uh, some returns. But I think that you know, from, from the very, very low period, because of the policy response, um, that has pushed investors out along the risk curve and inevitably led to some support to equities. So I would say, I mean, I, I wouldn't be looking for equities to rise further. or I think that that would be a, a worrying signal if they were to rise in the absence of further uh, economic support. But I think that what they're pricing in now is probably a, a fairer reflection of the economics of larger companies over the next decade. Thank you. Very useful. Thank you, Stephen. I'm going to move on to Sachdev Ramakrishna. Sachdev, are you on the line? Hi, Shalini. Hi. Hi. Yeah, so I have this question for Mr. Donovan. I think it's been some brilliant insights coming from you, so thank you for that. I was just wondering who could we expect to lead us out of this uh, potential impasse? I know you talked of human resilience to, to uh, push us forth, but Government seemed overwhelmed. Their budgets are stretched, just providing uh, for medical costs of, of uh, helping people overcome this crisis. 
one industry sector after another, airlines, hospitality, retail, all seem very stressed. Their company balance sheets are perhaps going to be stretched, and I'm not sure about what the impact is on employment. And consumer demand and sentiment as low as you also have perhaps mentioned. So uh, who's going to be uh, just leading this charge um, just to get us out uh, to a more optimistic time, um, uh, mental frame? Okay. Uh, <laughs> I'm going to ask if anybody else would like to comment on your question. Your question being, um, really, who is going to lead us out of this? Obviously, we've got Boris, we've got the MPs, but are you thinking about other business leaders who should be leading us out of this, Sachlev? Is that really um, the question? Exactly. You said it. Yeah. Yeah. And, and may I ask you, would you have a view on who you think should be leading us out of this? I just think there should be some, some brave souls. So, you know, we've had some um, high tides uh, in the economic uh, situation. Uh, we've had fairly prosperous times and coming on the back of it. We've had some leading technology companies who've mm -hmm. got cash reserves, uh, large market capitalization. And I think some of these brave souls should throw some light in this darkness. Otherwise, there seems to be this fall of gloom we are living in, right? And it's yeah. overhand uh, kill us, right? So. I'm going to ask Eunice. I think Eunice Malik is on the line. I think he will have a, a, a view on um, a response to this question as well. So, Sorry. Uh, that's okay, Paul. Did you hear the question? Uh, no, I'm sorry. I missed the question entirely. My, uh, my system cut out. I do apologize. No problem at all. What I'm going to just ask is Eunice Malik is on the line. If he could briefly, if he could comment on the question. The question was very much uh, about um, effectively who who are the people in addition to government that can lead us out of this crisis? Uh, and that was from um, Satchdev um, uh, Ramakrishna. So um, Eunice, I'll take your view and then Paul, if you've got anything to add, that would be great. But who, who can lead us out of this crisis? Thank you. Eunice, are you on the line? Yes, hello. Good afternoon, everybody. Hi, Eunice. Nice to have you back. Bye. So my point of view for a long term has been prior to this coronavirus as well. Um, I, I believe that uh, one has to focus on smaller groups to lead us out of it, you know, inside the business community or our families or on a, a local level, you know, to start with and then cross collaborate. But uh, also to lead us forward, uh, Paul mentioned, uh, you know, what can you put your money in? And I would say very happily, you should put your money into gold and silver and Bitcoin, because that is the only hedge you have in a current environment. The stock market keeps on going up on yo-yo. Uh, that is not going to stop in uh, in a near future. We heard today from Richard Branson, he's going to let go 3,300 people in Virgin Airways and so on. So the hedge you can do financially according to my humble opinion, is buy physical gold, physical silver, and your Bitcoin, not paper gold, which is stored by somebody else. Buy from companies who can actually deliver to you so you have possession of your metal. And when it comes to leaderships, yeah. you know, it, it, when the times are bad, as human beings, we've notoriously been very bad at picking very bad leaders. Uh, we tend to go towards the extreme, either to the right or left. But uh, leaders are going to immerse from different parts of society. 
And then it all depends upon us, which leaders do we choose to listen to? And that is going to be a very important factor going forward. Uh, a question for Paul I have is, Paul, uh, as an investor in UBS, as a shareholder, can you, I mean, maybe you know the answer for this or not. How much physical gold holding, not paper gold, physical gold holding does UBS have and silver? So UBS itself just has none. Um, we we don't. I I, I have to say I, I wouldn't uh, necessarily suggest that those are um, investments we recommend to our client base. Um, but our clients do hold gold. I have no idea how much it is. We have a couple of vaults. Um, we have one in Singapore. We have a couple in Switzerland. Um, it's been a declining trend, I would say, um, to, to hold physical metal because the cost is, is relatively high. Um, you, you pay if you want to hold physical metal. Um, so uh, that, has, that has become of less interest in, in recent years, perhaps. So, Paul, how come gold prices keep on going up? And, of course, if it's, it's costly, like you say, uh, to hold it with the banks or other storage institutes, but surely people are capable of protecting what they have if they make arrangements for it. So a lot of companies sell gold, but they charge you for storage. But the unfortunate thing, and many companies have been convicted of this, they sell the same gold over and over again. You know, they sell, let's say they got 100 kilogram of gold and they will sell it to a million different customers. Interrupt. I'm going to ask um, Paul to answer the question quickly um, because we've got a lot of people. I apologize, but My I want apologies. to as many um, topics as possible. So, Paul, that was, um, if you wanted to say something more on that, and then just coming back to the point on leaders, I'll add a comment on that. So, uh, I mean, generally, you know, the gold price is like any other commodity. It goes up and down. It's, it's particularly influenced by uh, demand from Asia, generally speaking. With the likely poor harvest that we're going to get this year, I think the downwards pressure is going to come through to gold. Um, you tend to find a big sale of gold. Um, remember, gold supply is not fixed. It's highly variable um, because of the recycling of gold through scrap metal. In terms of, of leadership, um, I, you can look for extremes, but I think actually this is, this is an interesting situation. What we've been seeing in opinion polls is actually a notable decline in support for extreme political parties during this. I think because there is a general sense of uh, rallying around the government and, and support for what the government has done. To oversimplify grossly, what tends to happen is if people's income is insecure, they tend to go to uh, the left, to the extreme left. If people's social status is insecure, they tend to go to the extreme right. Because of the government policies that we've been seeing around furlough and so on, most people do not feel that their income is insecure um, because they've had support uh, through uh, government schemes. So there's no particular natural demand there. And because this is, uh, in many ways, a leveling experience, in other words, you know, everyone who feels that, that they're, they're in this together, I mean, you know, virus does not distinguish by educational background or social class or anything like that. Um, then that has prevented, I think, uh, a move to the extreme right. People do not feel that their status is being uh, threatened in this environment. So I think that, that the existing political leadership will still uh, continue. Um, I think that the 
the, the difficulty for me is navigating not so much the virus, but, but some of the longer-term structural changes that the virus is accelerating, because people do not like change. Just as a, as a species, people don't like change um, and get very defensive in the face of change. And that's something that I think um, uh, is going to require careful leadership, uh, political, but also social, uh, in education, and leadership from companies, large or small. Um, I think actually in many ways it will be larger companies. I, I would actually disagree with some of the earlier comments. I think it's larger companies that are going to lead in terms of, of dealing with the change um, simply because they tend to have the structures and they tend to set societal norms a bit more readily as a rule. Thank you, Paul. One thing I'd add is um, that uh, what we've noticed is that government has been coming to the business community for their recommendations on changes and more business people that are actually in government, um, especially on terms of governance, will help. Um, thank you. The very good question from Satchdev. And moving on to um, Anna Maxwell. Anna, if you're on the line, if you wouldn't mind to briefly ask your question. And I'm going to encourage everyone to keep our questions short and our answers short because there's a lot of people who are asking questions and it'd be nice to cover as many as we can. So Anna, would you like to Hello. ask your question? Hello, can you hear me? Yes, thank you. Great. Um, so we are a consumer healthcare startup and the civils and the bounce back loans are really great if you have turnover, but we're a non-revenue generating R&D business. And my questions are, is there any data to identify how many businesses may be R&D non-revenue generating uh, businesses that are being affected by this? Because we've, we've found that the future fund matching doesn't work with the IS or institutions who are affected by de minimis rules. Um, we think the solution lies in greater tax breaks for EIS investors to generate funds flow into um, venture and private equity. But um, we've heard that this might be difficult due to EU rules. So is there any view from the panel on the likelihood of EIS tax breaks and also you know, how many, how many non-revenue generating R&D type businesses are there in the UK that this may well be affecting? Paul, do you want to answer that first? Uh, so I'm afraid I don't think that we have uh, reliable data on that. Um, it's too granular uh, to come out, at least from the ONS at, at this stage. That may be something we get in the future, but, but it's not something we're going to have for this crisis, I'm afraid. Okay. And I'll add to that, in terms of the R&D tax credit, Anna, uh, E2E have asked for the thresholds to be increased from um, 30 to 60% under EIS and from... 50 to 80 percent under SEIS. Uh, okay. In the comments that, that you've made around EU difficulties, there is a practical difficulty at the moment, um, but there's a lot of pressure going on to the government from groups such as ours. And I, th I, I don't know the answer at the moment, but it is being discussed um, at Treasury. So um, we'll have to wait and see. But as you correctly say, the future fund isn't really appropriate for SEIS, EIS related businesses. And there's also a request for them to, uh, to the government to, to see if they can change um, the, that in the future fund as well. On the data, again, I'm not clear on the data, but there's a lot of companies that we're coming across going through a similar thing. So as soon as we know more, Anna, I can send you an email. Fantastic. Uh, thank you. Thank you for the question. Um, if Nicholas Pantanelli is on the line, could I ask him to introduce himself? Nicholas, how are you doing? Hi, Shalini. Can you hear me okay? 
Yeah, great to have you on. Thank you very much, and uh, thank you for organising this and all of the previous ones. Um, Paul, I'd like to thank you very much for your contribution and time today as well. Uh, it's greatly appreciated. Um, my question to you really is, given um, the last recession that, that we saw just after 2008, um, as a result of the subprime mortgages, given that recession led to a lot of what we know as today's unicorns, do you think that this economic turndown will contribute to the creation of tomorrow's unicorns as well? Um, I think it will contribute, absolutely. Um, I think that what comes out of this, as I said, is this sort of acceleration of, of longer-term trends, um, uh, in some of which, actually, the UK has uh, a head start. Uh, flexible working and uh, online retail are all already further advanced in the UK than, than almost any other, um, at least, advanced economy. Uh, in the world, um, so I think that there are you know, there's there's interesting potential that comes out of that. Um, uh, I think that, as with any period of structural change, though, uh, there will be some dislocation. So um, you know, some of the the companies which were perhaps starting to look uh, quite promising in the wake of 2008 um, stop looking so promising because you're you're again structurally shifting priorities, shifting. Um, uh, the, the way in which society works. I mean, the whole point about an industrial revolution is that it's revolutionary. It, it, you know, the technology is the least important part. It's the, it's the fact that society adjusts and, and often with quite a lot of upheaval. The one thing that I would flag um, is that I think almost certainly there will be a larger role for government in the economy uh, in the wake of this crisis. Now, that wasn't so much the case after 2008. The government took a larger role in the financial sector, but not particularly in the economy at large. Uh, this time, I think it will be different. You've got the US talking about taking uh, equity stakes in companies. Um, we've already seen um, uh, direct interference in the UK uh, in dividend payments. Uh, as in prohibiting dividend payments, um, uh, even where the government doesn't have a stake. So, I mean, I think that the, the regulatory environment is going to be shifting, um, and that will be broader than just the financial sector. So uh, that may be an interesting constraint on some startups, although it has to be said, uh, it, regulation and finding ways to adapt to regulation can often encourage quite a lot of innovation. Thank you, Paul. Um, Nick, is that is that? Can I move on to the next question? Yeah, that was absolutely incredible. Thank you very much. Thanks, Nick. Thank you. Um, so I'm going to ask Stephen Maher to speak next. So I'm just going to ask after that Lara Mazzoni, and then after that Anthony Goodwin, and after that um, Noor Quek. So if you if you have your questions ready, um, so Stephen, unmute. Hello, Shalini. Can you hear me? Yes. Thank you. Hi, yeah. Stephen. Perfect. And thanks very much for being such a wonderful advocate of business in the UK, Shini. really appreciate it. And thanks, Paul, for your words of wisdom. Um, my question really is, is there a danger that the 25% lost income that you talked about, Paul, will not return as it will be used to pay off debts or because of lower wages going forward? So that is, that is a risk. Um, paying off debts, I think, is relatively unlikely. Um, uh, generally speaking, people don't rush to pay off debts, particularly as it's going to remain a very, very low interest rate environment, I think. Um, 
the risk for me is more that it, it becomes precautionary savings. Uh, you know, so that's that's your sort of rainy day fund in the bank in case you lose your job. That for me would be the bigger risk. Uh, to come out of this. And I think this is going to vary, I have to say, by, from country to country. So in somewhere like Italy, I think that there is a, a greater sense of pessimism, partly because the lockdown was a lot more draconian, partly because of the structure of society means that, that people tend to be a lot more aware of the mortality rate in Italy, for example, um, you, because families live in very close units, so you, you're more likely to know somebody from an older generation who's, uh, who's died of, of COVID-19. So I think that there is a more cautious approach coming through there. Um, so you may end up with more precautionary savings in Italy. I would argue potentially less precautionary savings in the UK, where um, you, we saw with everybody rushing to the pub as soon as they heard it was going to be shut down that evening. Not the most rational of responses, perhaps, but it's, you know, it, it's part of the national culture. Um, the one thing, that the, the caveat that we have to add for the UK is that because we went into this crisis with online sales so high, um, you know, 20 to 25 percent of total retail sales are done online in the UK, um, and because we we know online spending has increased, the savings in the UK may not be quite so large as they are elsewhere, because of course people have continued to shop online on a on a regular basis. Um, so there will be savings in the UK, but they may not be quite so large as elsewhere. So that would be a second caveat. But rather than looking for pay down and paying down debt, it's the it's the savings balance that would be my focus. Um, and whether that savings balance remains in place once lockdowns are, are more uh, lenient than they are today. Thank you very much. Very helpful. Thank, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Move on to Lara Mazzoni and then Anthony Goodwin. Lara? Hello. Can you Hi. hear me? Yeah, thank you. Ah, great. Hi, thank you. It's great. I've been following you for a few months and uh, you're doing a great job. So thank you for helping small business such as us. Um, now, the question I have for Paul is kind of in line with the previous question, but um, it's probably more broader. I mean, we already seen that tens of thousands of people have lost their job. I mean, we have, a, as um, he correctly pointed, a very generous key in the UK for solo, uh, but, um, you know, the, the economy is already suffering, mostly in, I would say, in the travel sector and entertainment, because uh, those meals that haven't been served, uh, it's like the haircut, they're not going to be served again. And people um, in the travel sector, we, I think we are also waiting to book our next flight because we don't know when and how we can fly. And therefore, most of airlines are starting to lay off thousands of people. So all these people are in, in trouble. And I, I think we are starting to see a number of people that are creating a, a, a recession situation, even if we have a scheme. And, and the other question is globally. I mean, we are all connected as a global economy anyway. Um, so in other countries such as Italy, Spain, um, I speak to businesses in around Europe and all the time, and there is a sense of uncertainty quite high. So uh, what's the prediction? Um, I've, uh, the comment Paul made was a bit optimistic in terms of the stock market. I think it's over-optimistic stock market at this moment. So um, in terms of the travel sector, 
Uh, and, and I'm saying you're quite right. This is going to be the very last sector to recover. Um, yes, yeah, so the, the, the travel sector, I think, will be the last one to recover. Um, partly that is because travel itself is, is something that will be controlled, but also because you can't depend on your country opening up. It's going to be about how other countries open up. So, so if we look at Greece, for example, so, so the concern with the travel sector is um, that you need sort of reciprocal opening. So Greece, for example, travel hugely important to Greece, obviously, um, but 25% uh, of their tourists come from the UK and Germany. Greece is now opening up its economy. It doesn't make a difference if people aren't flying out of the UK and aren't flying out of Germany to visit Greece. They need UK and Germany to open up as well. So that gives you a problem. Now, two points I would make about, about travel in the UK and, and the economic consequences of this. And again, I am very sympathetic to the plight of people in the travel industry who are facing very, very tough conditions and who are suffering personally. However, economically speaking, the travel industry is a low-value-added industry. That is to say, the somebody who is employed in a relatively low-skilled job in the travel sector is not contributing a great deal to the overall economy. Now, that doesn't mean they don't suffer personally, but it means that the economy suffers a lot less if those people are not in work. The second thing is that the UK is a tourism trade deficit country. That is to say, British people spend more overseas than foreigners spend in the UK when it comes to tourism. And the number is, is somewhere around 1.5% or 2% of GDP deficit. What that means is that if the global travel industry has shut down, net, that is a positive, or at least it's not a negative, for the UK economy. So um, I, I fully appreciate that for individuals and for companies involved, this is extremely stressful and extremely distressing. From a, an objective macroeconomic position, this is not necessarily so bad for the UK overall, though it is disruptive, um, because as we run a trade deficit in tourism, as does, say, a country like Germany, um, uh, uh, the, the slowdown in the tourism sector will be of marginal benefit to the domestic economy. Okay, cool. Thank you very much. I have to ask you a quick question. It's two minutes to uh, three now. Do you have 10 more minutes to carry on um, or, or do you need to finish or stop at three? No, we can, we can carry on a little bit, I think. Yes, that should be fine. Thank you very much because there's quite a few more questions, so we really appreciate that. So everybody listening, we'll try and cover things until 10 past three and, uh, and close up latest by 3.15. Um, so the next question, if I may ask, it's from Noor Quek. Noor, are you there? It's around Asia, your question. So uh, please, could you uh, unmute? Yes, I'm here. Hi. Can you hear me? Yes, we can hear you clearly. Hello. Yes, well, thank you very much for this. And it's been a, a, a Paul, I appreciate very much your thoughts. Um, I'm just thinking, coming from this part of the world, that... Um, um, things to be uh, things seem to be very much concentrated on Europe, uh, the UK, uh, but we're sitting in Asia here with the two big giants, or three big giants, India, China, and the US. And I've not heard anything about the impact over, over and above all that happening on the 
on the trade war that is looming now and again. Now, I have two questions. What do you think Asia is going to be like a year from today, um, all things being equal, given what you said in the third or the last quarter, we might you know, see some improvement, and also the impact on, on, on any possible trade war? Because we do have a very, very young population um, eager to move on, very hardworking, Mm-hmm. and uh, some very wealthy uh, uh, companies, especially family-owned companies. Paul, any thoughts? So on, on the trade war, I, I will start with that one. Um, I think that um, we will hear a lot more noise around the trade uh, dispute. I think it is relatively unlikely that there will be an escalation of uh, the trade dispute this year. So we will hear a lot more noise because uh, US President Trump's uh, political style is is what I call anti-politics. That is to say, President Trump um, uh, tends to campaign against things. This is a problem. I am the person who can solve this problem. Uh, so he needs uh, a scapegoat. He needs a target to attack for his political style. And of course, you know, that's what we saw in, in the uh, 2016 election when the focus was very much on immigration uh, and his opponent, uh, obviously, Hillary Clinton, uh, and setting himself up as, as against those was very important. This time, I think uh, we, we have always thought since before COVID-19, China would be a convenient scapegoat for the United States um, or for, for the US president. Only I can make sure China comes to a deal. I have got the rapport with, with President Xi. China will steal our business unless you vote for me. That kind of rhetoric. So we're going to get that. And we've been seeing that uh, coming through in political campaigning in recent days. However, so it's, I more think yeah, it's more teasing than a real yeah. But well, I, I don't think he's going. I don't think he would be allowed to. T- uh, he would want to take this into an escalation of the trade war, and the reason for that yes. is that you remember the trade deal that was signed at the start of this year was the greatest deal ever in the history of deal making, and only <laughs> President Trump could do it. To then reverse that in front of the electorate four months ahead of an election, that would be very, very damaging to the president. So he's got to make sure that the deal is still a success, but only I can enforce the second stage and the third stage, which is why this deal came in 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 different stages. So I don't think we necessarily get an escalation of the trade war. I do think that there will be quite a lot of disruption to global trade um, uh, because we're, we're trying to deal with um, disrupted supply chains, the global economy will not end lockdown in a synchronized way. So that does create some issues. We've already seen that with factories in China opening in March and closing in April. Opening in March because right. COVID-19 restrictions were lifted, closing in April because global demand suddenly collapsed. Um, right. In the longer term, um, one year, unfortunately, is, is the wrong time horizon for me. Um, on a two-year-plus view, I think Asia has a significant challenge, a very significant challenge. Because in my view, the, the, the move towards localizing production, 
simplifying long, complicated global supply chains does not necessarily work to Asia's advantage. But you can't move to local production immediately. I mean, some industries are already doing this. The textile industry, clothing, for example, is already moving to localized production models. Um, so that will that was already happening. But I think for other industries, it will take a couple of years to start to restructure these long, complicated supply chains. But I think they will be restructured. Now, the Asian economic model of the last 25 years, in particular in China, has been built on this phenomenal success of becoming links in long, complex supply chains. And I am not sure that enough governments in Asia are recognizing that that model will not work anymore, that it's over, it's finished, and that they need to find new ways of, of engineering growth, uh, new approaches uh, rather than this sort of rather mercantile approach that we've had. So I think in a year's time, Asia will be um, enjoying the global bounce back uh, in, in economic activity. Uh, and also, if there is some inventory build going on in companies, Asia will benefit from that because it supplies the goods that sit in warehouses. But I think that in a year's time, the economic outlook will be a little bit more difficult as we see some of these structural changes coming through. Thank you, Paul. Thank you, Paul. And I think it's very insightful. Very, very insightful. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for your question. I'm going to move on, please, if I may. Um, I'm going to ask um, Dagmar to, to ask her question, then Sarah Zandel, followed by um, Fred Destin and Lee Lam. Uh, we've got about another seven or eight questions. So, um, let's go next. Hello. Well, Hello. <laughs> We're sharing a computer here to save energy. Um, <laughs> Paul, thank you so much for a very, very wide and focused narrative of, of, of what, what is around, and I particularly like the way you explain, you know, the way we look at how things will return potentially. Um, nobody could have foreseen this. My question really is, in terms of SMEs that were in the process um, of attracting investments from under the EIS and SMIS scheme, um, SEIS scheme rather, is the attitude you think or the views that the um, VCs and uh, and institutional investors, and maybe the private equity funds, may take on that. And if I could just caveat that with um, a, an article I read in, in Walpole, is that when the lockdown is over and people go shopping, VCs and PEs will also want to go shopping. What is your view on that, please? So um, this may, again, vary from country to country. Um, because what we're talking about here essentially is, is the level of risk appetite uh, amongst investors. And um, there is inevitably, just psychologically, there is a bias according to the circumstances in which you'll find yourself, the, you know, the, the anecdotal evidence of, of people around you, um, uh, and so on and so forth. So I think you will get possibly, just as you get a variation with consumers, and their willingness to go shopping, that actually also does extend to venture capital. Um, I would suggest that um, we are in an environment where central banks are likely to continue to encourage investors to move out along the risk curve uh, and to look towards taking risk. 
I think that the the prospect of a relatively low-yielding government bond market for a prolonged period of time, um, uh, partly through financial repression and so on, um, uh, is likely to encourage certain investors to uh, look at um, uh, private equity and, uh, and direct investment uh, more and more. I think that's certainly something that comes through. The caveat to this is financial repression. So essentially what will happen is that um, banks and life insurers and pension funds uh, will be, quote, encouraged to buy government bonds. Encouraged in the sense that you will buy government bonds or will close you down. Um, so regulations will change and so on and so forth. So the, the traditional institutional investors may be a less active source of funds than, than perhaps in the past. But I think other investors, one can think perhaps of the, of the charity sector, for example, where liquidity, short-term liquidity perhaps is less of a problem, uh, private clients, uh, I think will be looking to uh, enhance their returns by uh, moving out along the risk curve, and, and that will include private equity. Well, thank you for that. If I could extend that into your views on the lottery sector. Thomas, I'm going to be cheeky. I'm sorry, we have to move on because we've got lots of um, questions. But okay, can thank I... you, Paul. Bye bye. <laughs> I'm going to ask, if I may, um, Sarah Zandal, followed by Lee Lam, and followed by, if I may, to finish with with Bipul Dabe. Uh, yes, can you hear me? Yes, Sarah, thank you. Okay, I was just going to go kind of slightly different direction. Even in the most optimistic scenario where we completely eradicate this virus, as unlikely as it is, you know, there's still a large reservoir of these SARS-CoV type viruses and interactions with the media area hosts. Uh, do you think we'll see countries and companies shift in behavior or will they just speed up existing trends? Um. My own view is that um, you will you will see some shifts, uh, but I think there has to be something else behind it. That's why I'm talking about acceleration of existing trends. To to get a virus or, or an illness or something um, which creates a permanent change in behaviour is relatively unlikely. Um, you can create a short-term change in behavior, um, but ultimately people don't necessarily change behavior uh, that much. We saw this around uh, HIV, um, a virus which is far more deadly than any of these coronaviruses, um, and where you did get a short-term change in behavior once the, you know, the, the, the virus was understood and the, the in horrendous mortality rate. Uh, was understood. I mean, it was 100% mortality um, uh, and 10% uh, infection rate. So it was hugely, hugely devastating to uh, a, a section of the community. Um, the infection rates went down and then they went back up again. And they went back up again because people don't change their behavior indefinitely. So that's why I'm talking about accelerating existing changes more than you know, a, a virus being a seismic shift. It's just not how the, the human psychology tends to work, in my view. Thanks. Yeah, it was just the potential for, you know, because there are a bunch of these similar types of viruses in reservoirs. So you don't think people would consider the potential for, say, a similar one? You know, this was similar to SARS. It's basically the name is SARS 2.0 2 for all practical purposes. 
So you don't think people will consider that? I don't think people will consider it until it's right in front of them. Um, you know, just as um, you know, m malaria is not particularly considered, but it's still a potentially um, you know, uh, very serious and, and often fatal disease. People don't. You know, we, we have got countless numbers of, of, of diseases which people just tend to ignore uh, until absolutely confronted with it. Um, so I suspect that that's what um, will happen in terms of what is still relatively abstract threat. Um, it's only if it's an active threat and, and a, a directly personal threat that, that people will respond. Okay, thank you. Um, Paul, thank you very much. Thank you for your question. I appreciate it. I, I have to apologize. I know there's a queue of people who've been waiting for a while to ask questions. We have run out of time. We've got two minutes to go. Um, so, Paul, if I may, I may send you some of these questions on an email. Um, they're from Lee Lam, from Fred Destin, from Vipul Dave. So, um, can I say thank you to everyone who's asked a lot of questions. Apologize that we've run out of time. Um, say a huge thank you, Paul. As you can see, you're a man in demand. Um, your knowledge is very critical to our success at the moment. And it's been a privilege um, to have you um, share your insights and very, very useful as well. So can I say thank you to you and also to UBS? As most of our um, uh, members know, UBS has partnered with us right from the outset since I started E2E. Um, so it's brilliant to, to be able to do this with you. Thank you very much um, for doing this session with us. Oh, thank you very much for the opportunity. Um, am I okay to send you some more questions offline? Yes, of course. Yes, that'll be fine. No problem. Thank you. So um, there's a few people from the UBS team that are on the call. I believe Ashley Coombs, Ray Brown, um, Tom Dupernex, um, the Relationship Directors and Client Advisors at uh, UBS, so thank you for your support. Um, we've, uh, we've had about 100 people on the line, so it's brilliant to, to be able to do this. Um, I also just wanted to very quickly mention, um, uh, we're producing a series called Business Unusual. And what we've done is we've interviewed a number of um, entrepreneurs um, from early stage to um, uh, large owners of large businesses. If you're interested in profiling how you're coping with the situation, your story, my, my colleague, Fergus Mellon, um, he's, he's doing the interview. So if anyone is interested in being featured on, on our series, which will go onto YouTube uh, commencing next week, it's called Business Unusual, um, please drop me a line. And uh, if you have any further thoughts around how we can continue to help, um, from my, my question last week, the same question, many of you did write in with suggestions and uh, some of you had a conference call with me on suggestions on how E2E can evolve um, to help our entrepreneurs more. The other important question I was asking is what are you willing to pay for? Um, so we're very keen to understand what services would be of help to our members where we can um, sustain ourselves as well. So um, please do keep in touch with me and, and, and drop me a line on those sorts of things. Um, so thank you very much to all of you for taking the time. It's coming up to um, quarter past three. We've gone over and that's because uh, I think when Paul was very, very insightful. Thank you for joining us and I apologise to those of you that have been waiting, but I'll try and get you some answers to your questions if you'd like me to do that. So thank you and um, speak to you again soon, hopefully.